Today's scripture reading comes to us from Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Harold is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Harold. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Harold, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramon, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be confronted because there are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning yet again. Hope to uh, wish you all a Merry Christmas after service. Just to remind you, we have a special potluck after service. So please be sure to come down and have some yummy food that our fellow NCFers have provided for today's fellowship. Now, with all that said, would you now bow your heads with me and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, we ask that you would now speak to us. Lord, we believe that your spirit has summoned each and every one of us here to gather at this place for this holy moment where we could sit at your feet and you can now speak truths, words that bring comfort, conviction, and hope. God, we pray now that as we prepare to enter into this day of Christmas, that you would prepare our hearts with the words that you will speak to us today. And may you challenge us in the ways that we must be challenged. And may you lift us up into your heavenly presence so that we could know that we are without a doubt deeply loved by you as your beloved children by virtue of the work that your son Jesus had done on our behalf. And now, Father, we pray that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. Peace, earth, earth, peace. Now that's what we heard, and that's what we herald. So what do you do when you, like I, turn on the news and you're confronted with story upon story when it seems that there is no peace whatsoever. Whether you're turning on the news and you read about how our own president could be indicted on real criminal charges, or you hear about the recent outbreak of polio taking the lives of too many of our young ones in this country today, or consider the senseless violence both here and abroad, driven and motivated by radical ideology, whether it be on politics or religion, You take your pick. I don't know about you, but where I stand, it does not seem to be much peace here on earth. And to further aggravate it, the last place where you see peace also happens to be the place where you would expect it the most, especially here on Christmas, and that is the home. Did you know that there is a surge of domestic violence on Christmas Day more than any other day of the year? It's true. Not only here in America but also all over this world. And even if you're fortunate enough and not having to deal with that kind of domestic disturbance, you're still unfortunate of having to deal with another form of domestic disturbance that manifests in you walking on eggshells with the people that you spend time with this time of year by not bringing up the past, 
by not bringing up politics, by not talking about that person who isn't there but should be, or the person who is there but shouldn't be. Yes, indeed. For a season that's supposed to inspire peace, in many instances, does the exact opposite. It induces conflict, sometimes in the form of violence. And as followers of Jesus, this can cause many of us to be so unsettled because it starts us on a journey that begins with our discouragement, and it could end with not only disappointment, but even downright doubts. Why? Because... As Christians, we carry a certain expectation. We carry certain assumptions about Christmas, do we not? We assume that Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy and peace. Christmas is not supposed to be tense. It's not supposed to be tumultuous. It's not supposed to be tragic. And I totally get that because on the one hand, I do agree with you. Christmas is not supposed to be that way. And yet on the other hand, I cannot agree with you. And the reason why I cannot agree with you is because of the fact of how our Lord Jesus experienced Christmas himself that's recorded for us here in our passage in Matthew chapter 2. Listen. On the day that Jesus breathed his first breath on earth also happened to be the same day that so many try to make it his last. On the day where God came into the world incarnating as a human baby so that he can reconcile the world to himself, also happened to be the day when the world intensified its rejection of its creator. It turns out that Christmas was not a peaceful or tranquil time for Jesus either. Like the Christmas of so many, it was filled with violence, turmoil, and confusion. And today, as we finish our Christmas sermon series, our Advent series entitled The Christmas Tour, where we're taking a sermonic tour of the various places that have been marked by either the birth of Jesus or immediately following the birth of Jesus, we end our journey by landing on Egypt. Egypt. Why? Well, as our passage will teach us, as well as other biblical passages in today's message, we will come to understand that as we consider what the Bible has to say about Egypt and how it relates to us, It can not only educate us, it can not only edify us, but it can also equip us with a sense of peace within, even when we're living in a world where there seems to be nothing, nothing remotely close to peace at all. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you as it pertains to Egypt. Number one, Egypt in the days of Jesus. Number two, Egypt in the heart of man. And finally, let's end it with Egypt in the light of the cross. Egypt in the days of Jesus, Egypt in the heart of man, and Egypt in light of the cross. First, Egypt in the days of Jesus. Now, if you ever read through the New Testament, one of the quick things that you pick up right away is how the Jews were very reluctant to accept and therefore unwilling to acknowledge Jesus as their one true king. And the biggest reason for their unwillingness to embrace Jesus as truly the king that is their king is spoken for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're starting in the 21st verse. We read, Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom... He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. And the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Pause right there. Your attention, please. If you have a little pen or highlighter, underline that phrase in 23 that says that the Jews were offended. In another English translation, the word is sometimes used scandal. Now what? is a scandal. And no, I'm not talking about that stupid political soap opera that was on ABC starring Kerry Washington for for many, many years. I, I really despise that show. That's not the scandal I'm talking about. No, scandal is anything that is disgusting, 
disgraceful, discrediting. In other words, it's anything that would rob the reputation and honor of a person and those who are associated with such persons. And it's for that reason the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that they could not accept, the Jews could not accept Jesus as a long-awaited king. Think about it from their perspective. Here they have a vision of what a king should be. Someone who is holy, someone who is righteous, someone who is filled with integrity, someone who is filled with valor. And yet Jesus ends up being executed, crucified, the death of the worst kinds of criminals, a punishment that was only reserved for the extremely wicked, for the egregiously perverted. No, that cannot be my king. That's not the kind of king that they would envision. That's not the king that they would put their hopes in. And then for those same Jews to be exposed to further New Testament teaching that not only says that this Jesus is their long-awaited king, their Messiah, but also God, my God, in the flesh, they would have found even further offense, especially when they read what Matthew says in verse 13. Read it again with me. It says this, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Here is Matthew's account of what he's portraying as Israel's God coming in the form of a human being, okay? And he chooses to do what? To manifest himself as a helpless baby. Now, let's just set aside how ridiculous it may seem to some of you, this idea that God would come into the world as a helpless human being. Why? Because as ridiculous as it may sound to you, it would not have necessarily been ridiculous for the early Jews. You know why? Because even centuries before Jesus was actually born, there were ancient prophecies. There were ancient books like 4th Ezra and 1st Enoch that talked about this idea that Israel's long-awaited king, the Messiah, could be, maybe even, especially divine. So this idea of Israel's God manifesting in the form as a human being would not have necessarily been offensive to the Jews. So here's the question. What exactly, verse 13, would a Jew have found so offensive? You know what the answer is? It's the place where the angel told Joseph to take the baby Jesus to. Where is that? Egypt. Egypt. For the Jew. The idea that an angel of the Lord would command Joseph to take the baby Jesus, who again is being portrayed as Israel's great long-awaited king and God in the flesh for protection, for preservation, for provision, would have been preposterous. Why? Well, think about it from their perspective. Think about the cultural background Jews back then would have come out of. They are currently under occupation by a foreign nation the Roman Empire. And before it was the Roman Empire, it was the Persians. And before the Persians, it was the Assyrians. And before the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. For over half a millennia, the people of Israel, Israel as a nation, was either occupied by or exiled to a foreign nation that would strip them of all their cultural and religious heritage, rape their women, kill their children, leave their poor and old to fend for themselves, which usually meant a slow and dying death. And guess which was the very first nation that created this kind of atrocity against Israel at such a great egregious level with slavery and genocide. That's right, Egypt. It was Egypt. And if you ever read through the book of Exodus, you can read all about it. You can read about, for example, how the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites for over 400 years with hard, brutal labor. You can read about how the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, 
ordered the systematized murdering of innocent, helpless babies by ordering the midwives to throw them into the Nile River the moment that they are born. You're thinking, what? Are you serious? You don't believe me? Take a listen to what it says in Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives. Shipra and Puah. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River. You see, for the ancient Jew, Egypt was to them what Nazi Germany is to the modern Jew today. It was a nation responsible for systemic violation and atrocities against them. And that level of victimization is not something that you can erase out of your cultural memory no matter how much time has passed. And of course, you don't have to be a Jew to understand this. Most of us in here can understand this, right? Especially for those of you who grew up with parents who still to this day see Japan as their mortal enemy like my parents did and still do. You know, growing up in my family, we never owned electronics from Tony, uh, Tony, Sony. (laughs) Tony's here. Tony's not here. We never owned electronics made by Sony or Toshiba. That's why I substitute the team. We certainly didn't drive cars made by Honda or Toyota, even though our whole family knew they made superior cars than the Buick Regal we were driving in, right? All of us in here can easily relate to the level of offense that the Jews would have felt as they read verse 13. Because according to their worldview, this idea that Matthew is portraying that the God of Israel would become a human being and depend on the enemy of Israel, Egypt, for strength, for dependence, for for hope, would have been like a slap in the face, almost as if your own parents stabbing you in the back, right? How offensive it would have been. The idea that my king, my God, instead of coming to me, would go to my enemy, the one who has done so much pain, caused so much pain and caused so much sorrow to my culture, to my heritage. Here's the question. Why would God, knowing the reaction of his people, orchestrate Christmas in such a way to where if the story of Christmas is true, if the God of Israel would become a human being, why would he have God himself go to Egypt knowing that this is the kind of visceral reaction his people would have the answer leads me to my next point Egypt in the heart of man skip on down to the second half of our passage and read again with me verses 16 all the way down to verse 18 can we have it up there it says this Herod was furious when he realized that the wise man had outwitted him he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise man's report for the, of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Come on back. If you're able to stay awake up till now, you'll notice that the passage I just read to you sounds eerily similar to one I just read a moment ago. Here's a hint. It was the passage about a wicked king trying to kill all the baby boys. That's right. Herod, this guy Herod, is acting virtually identical to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh, right? by trying to also murder all the innocent baby boys. Now, if you're here today and you're not familiar with the Bible or the Christmas story, you're wondering to yourself, who is this Herod? Who is this guy that Matthew is spinning in such a negative way or is it spin turns out herod is herod the great herod the great being king of the jews that's right this murderous monster 
is the king of God's people. And the reason why I call him a murderous monster isn't simply because of the atrocious things that we just read, as if that could be top. But this man was so consumed, so bloodthirsty for power to reign as king that you know what he did in addition to this crazy act? He killed three of his own sons and he murdered his own wife. Now, I know when some of you hear that, immediately you're imagining some sort of like wicked ruler that you would see on a show like Game of Thrones or The Last Kingdom. Someone who is just so consumed, right, of trying to maintain power, trying to scheme and kill, that he'd be too busy trying to create a positive public persona. But oh, how wrong you would be. You see, everyone knew during that time that Herod was evil. Everyone except Herod himself. Because as hard as it is to imagine, Herod actually believed himself to be a genuine God-fearing man. Okay, And to prove it, he did something that he thought would be the greatest display of his piety. You know what he did? He renovated Solomon's temple. He expanded it. Okay, To where now, New Testament scholars always refer to it as the second temple. This great personification of Herod's devotion. That was how he tried to prove to the world and maybe to himself that he loved God and was so devoted to him. I mean, listen to his speech that he gave right before he undertook this public uh, renovation. He said this, quote, But that the enterprise which I now propose to undertake is the most pious and beautiful one of our time, and I will now make clear. For this was the temple which our fathers built to the most great God after return, turning from Babylon. But it lacks 60 cubits in heights, the amount by which the first temple built by Solomon exceeded it. But since by the will of God I am now ruler and there continues to be a long period of peace and an abundance of wealth and great revenues, I will try to remedy this oversight caused by the necessity and subjugation of that earlier time. And by this act of piety, make full return to God for the gift of this kingdom. Wow. Not the kind of words that you would expect to come out of a murderous monster. And yet here it is in print, even to this day for us to read. Which tells us what? It tells us that this man, Herod, was a very, very self-deceived individual. He was someone who genuinely believed he was something that he was nothing close to whatsoever. Okay, And those of you who ever study psychology... Right? And you see this pattern of behavior of someone who is this self-deceived and you couple that with the level of violence that he did, you know how he is classified in today's psych books. You know what Herod would be classified today? He would be considered a narcissist. Right? Herod fits the classic profile of a classical narcissist. Okay, And do you think it's mere coincidence that Herod, the narcissist, also happens to be the king of the Jews, the king of God's people? Remember what a literal definition of a king is. It is someone who is a representation of those whom he rules over. What does this say about the Jews themselves? If the one who represents them, the one who embodies them, is such a wicked narcissist. Hold on to that thought as I draw your attention to something else. Psychologists go on to tell us that there is actually ways in which you can identify a narcissist by how they portray themselves. Yes, indeed. The way you can easily identify a narcissistic person is by how they perceive themselves in the eyes of others. And do you know how narcissists portray themselves? 
Consider these words from a clinical psychologist up in Vancouver named Scott Williams. He says this, quote, A narcissist is a completely self-absorbed person. There can be no other gods in an extreme narcissist world, regardless if they say they believe in God or not. In practical terms, a narcissist is God in his or her own imagination. Ego rules supremely in the narcissist's life. In light of this, what energizes a narcissist is whatever fuels the ego. One way that this narcissist's ego gets special attention is through the role of being a victim. As kind and compassionate-driven human beings, we easily are fooled by this form of extreme ego. The deception of the ego is that the narcissist can hide behind the misfortune and victimization in order to shame you into feeling and believing that they suffer more than you do. They will say that you don't care enough about them. They will make you feel that you have not done enough to help them. The ego wants attention, control, gain, and power over others by positioning itself as a poor and helpless victim. In the eyes of an extreme narcissist, their situation is always right and totally justified. Instead of taking responsibility for self and consequences, the extreme narcissist tries to make others feel responsible for their plight. They will try to make you responsible and feel guilty for not helping them or taking their side and cause. Let it sink in for just a moment. What is a narcissist? A narcissist, at its core, is someone who believes they are the greatest victim of all, when in reality they are no different, if not worse, than those who victimize them. Again, a narcissist is someone who considers themselves to be the greatest victim of all, when in reality they are no different, if not worse, than those who victimize them. And that is what God is trying to tell His people. By going to Egypt. If the baby Jesus could talk to his people, he would essentially be saying to this, guys, look, me going to Egypt should not be scandalous. You know why? Because you, my people, you are just as evil, you are just as perverted, you are just as selfish, you are just as wicked as those who has victimized you. In some cases, you're even worse. By the way, this is something that God has told his people countless of times. If you go back to the book of Old Testament and the book of Amos, chapter 3, take a listen to what God says to his prophet Amos, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. Announce this to the leaders of Philistia and to the great ones of Egypt. Take your seats now on the hills around Samaria and witness the chaos and oppression in Israel. My people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with wealth taken by theft and violence. Do you see how it says there that God commands Philistia and Egypt to take a seat? You know what that means? That's referring to an ancient Jewish law where a judge would summon two reliable witnesses to condemn someone to death. That's what it's referring to. And the fact that God calls Egypt, of all people, to be a reliable witness against his own people, what does that tell us about Israel? It tells us that in spite of how Israel sees themselves, they're not this, oh, poor me, woe is me victim. They're also victimizers. To the point that it's so grave that even Egypt could stand in judgment against them. Putting all this together, what's the point? The point is this. One of the reasons why God came into the world as Jesus Christ on Christmas is to wake people up. To wake people up from this delusional sense that is so pumped, that is so puffed up, that says, oh, woe is me. Who am I? Nobody cares. Nobody loves me. I'm the poor victim, right? I'm nobody. 
And God is saying, wake up. Look at yourself for real. And this is something that I think everyone in here needs to really, really pay attention to, especially you Christians in here. Why? Because who are the ones who are self-deceived in this passage that we're studying in Matthew 2? It's the Jews. Who are the Jews? The people of God. Who are the people of God? It's all of you. Those of you who call yourself followers of Jesus, which means what? It means every single one of you, in spite of what you say, I love Jesus, I'm all for Jesus, kind of like the way Herod would talk back then. All of us can easily fall into this self-absorbed victim mindset that is really driven by a narcissistic self-absorption that gives us a sense of justification of hurting others because we've been hurt. Well, I can victimize because I've first been victimized. He says, no, that is not true. The reason why Jesus went to Egypt is to show all of us that there is an Egypt in all of us. That is, we all carry the attitude of Egypt. As much as we don't want to admit, as much as we try to deny, we all carry this attitude of trying to conquer, trying to defeat, trying to humiliate someone else so that it gives me the advantage. You know in your heart of hearts that is true. If you take an honest look at yourself, there is an Egypt, not just simply across the globe, there is an Egypt in you. There is an Egypt in the human heart. And the question is, what can we do about that? How do we get free from it? And this leads me to my final point. Egypt in the light of the cross. Read again with me verses 14 and 15 of our passage, where it says, That night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Now you'll notice at the end of 15, Matthew is quoting a prophet. That prophet's name is Hosea. Okay? Hosea, and if you read chapter 11 of the book that bears his name, you will find this exact quote. But here's the thing. If you read that quote and the statement that comes right after it, which is verse 2 of chapter 11, you'll be utterly confused. Let me show you why. This is what Hosea 11, starting in verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. There it is. But then look at what it says right after in verse 2. But the more I called to him, the further he moved from me, offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. Now that is weird. Matthew Why are you quoting Hosea 11.1 knowing that it might inspire your readers to do what everyone does when they hear a clip of music that sounds tantalizing or a movie trailer that looks entertaining? They want more of it. So I can even imagine how an ancient Jew would read this quote in Matthew chapter 2. Like, oh, wow, where's this quote from? Let me go back to the original source. And they read Hosea 11 and they read it and they're like, what? Wait a minute, this makes no sense. Hosea 11 is not talking about Jesus. It's talking about how God saved Israel after 400 years of slavery and how Israel responded with rebellion and wickedness and idolatry. Matthew, why in the world would you use this verse out of context like this in a situation that seems to make no relevant sense whatsoever to Jesus or the Christmas story? That's a great question. Take a listen to how one New Testament scholar by the name of Greg Beal, what he says, quote, Matthew portrays Jesus to be recapitulating the history of Israel because he sums up Israel in himself. Since Israel disobeyed, Jesus has come to do what they should have. So he must retrace Israel's steps up to the point that they failed and then continue to obey and succeed in the mission Israel should have carried out. The attempt to kill the Israelite infants, the journey of Jesus and his family into Egypt and back to the promised land again is the same basic pattern of Israel of old. Hence, Jesus did what Israel should have done, but did not do. 
What's he saying? He's saying Jesus came into the world to fulfill the mission that Israel failed to fulfill. Now, of course, that begs the question, what is the mission of Israel in the Old Testament? What was that all about? Stay with me here, okay? We live in a broken and very, very dysfunctional world. And you know what that means practically? It means everyone who lives on this earth will at one point will be a victim. Even victimizers, everyone that walks on this earth will be a victim, even the victimizers. Oh, haven't you heard? Hurt people, hurt people. Bully people, bully people, right? And as a result, we live in a world filled with people cycling and recycling this cause and effect toxicity where a person gets victimized, they become a victimizer, creating more victims who in turn victimize others, and on and on and on it goes, which means the only way this world is ever going to get better is if a victim or a group of victims refuses to keep cycling this toxic victimization mindset and victimization act. A victim at some point or a group of people has to say, I refuse to participate and fall into a self-absorbed, narcissistic, victimizing attitude while at the same time still thinking I'm a victim. Someone has to say, I refuse to take on that kind of self-deception and instead choose to be someone who is selfless, someone who is humble, so that I can stop this cycle from continuing on in the world. That was Israel. That's what Israel was supposed to do. There's a reason why God waited 400 years before saving his people from slavery in Egypt. You know why? Because he wanted to show Israel that as they suffered as much as they have, as much as they've been victimized, he wanted to show them after having enough victimization to where any one of them would have been justified in victimizing others by saying, look at my people Israel. Even though... Many could argue they have a right to victimize others because of how much they've been victimized. They will not because they've encountered a power that is far greater than the desire to victimize others because they've been victimized. You know what that is? God's love. That's the mission of Israel in the Old Testament. So that through their victimization, they could say, I will not do what the rest of the world does because I've encountered something that can free me and help me overcome this vicious cycle that the world has been sucked into. Instead of coming back with victimization of other people, I will serve, I will bless, I will be a light unto the nations. But as we just read in Hosea 11, that didn't happen. Because they gave in, didn't they? They chose to do what the rest of the world does, to make their contribution of cycling back the curse of victimization from sin over and over. And so what did God do? God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, our great triune God, came together in full agreement to plan for God the Son to come into the world, to be born in the city of David in a small town known as Bethlehem, and later go to Egypt with his parents. Why? So when the time came for Jesus to leave Egypt, he wouldn't bring Egypt with him in his heart. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to fulfill the mission that Israel failed to do. By becoming the only true righteous victim that will therefore break the curse of sin and victimization in the world. That is what happened when Jesus later on died on the cross for the sins of humanity. When Jesus died on the cross, do you know what he did? He took on the sins of all humanity. He took on the full brunt, the full extent Everything that this world has done against each other and against God. And he took it all upon himself on that cross. Which tells us what? It tells us that Jesus is the greatest victim 
in cosmic history. Not just in human history, but cosmic history. There is no greater victim than Jesus. Even Israel's 400 years of victimization as a nation cannot compare to Jesus' agonizing sufferings and death on the cross. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, are you sure about that, Pastor? That's 400 years, and it took Jesus only six hours to suffer and die. How can you, just by quantitative time, say right, that what Jesus endured was far greater than what Israel suffered for 400 years? Listen, if educators can squeeze... 15 weeks of fall semester into a six-week summer class, I'm pretty confident that God can squeeze the sins of all humanity and take it upon himself because that's what the scripture tells us. And he suffered the greatest humiliation, the greatest victimization, making him the ultimate victim. And so with that in mind, I ask, what was Jesus' response at the height of his victimization? Did he say, oh, poor me, why me, why me? Did he cry out to his father, father, just smite them. Look at what they've done to me. Victimize them, Lord. Smite them down now, right before my crucified body. No. What did he cry out? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What is Jesus doing by saying those words? He's fulfilling Israel's mission, right? By saying those words, he's fulfilling Israel's mission because he's displaying what the power of his father's love can do to him. The power of the father's love is able to take the greatest victim of all and not react with revenge, not react with wanting to victimize others, not wanting to retaliate, but instead be humble and be concerned for other people's welfare, even the very people who are victimizing him at that moment. Do you see? That is what the gospel is does that is the power of the cross it is able to bring light into the darkest of human hearts that have been darkened by victimization upon victimization that they have received and it can banish that darkness to where egypt in light of the cross is essentially no more what is egypt in light of the cross it's gone that is what the light of the cross does it gives us a power in overcoming the vicious cycle that the world is always trying to pull you in every time it victimizes you, of emboldening you to victimize others in response. But instead, the Father's love is able to kill that cycle once and for all to where instead of reenacting, recycling, recontributing the curse of sin, you say, I will not be that way. Instead, I will be like my king, my true king, who's given me not only the example, but he's given me the power, the love of his Father that is now mine, personally, passionately, powerfully. So that as I live in a world filled with no peace, I have peace within. And because I have peace within, I, along with those who have that same power, can change this world for the better. We can reverse the cycle. And instead of bringing curse upon curse, We bring blessing upon blessing. That is what Egypt is in light of the cross. It's no more. But here's my question to you, NCF. Have you encountered that power? Have you experienced that power? Have you been enveloped by that power? I hope to God, for the sake of this world, that you have with that Now all said, let's move on to some final next steps.
that I would like for you to consider uh, some practical application to today's message. First, if you're here today and you're investigating Christianity, and today's message has really hit that tipping point for you where you now are ready to come forward and embrace Jesus for who he is, your king, our king, the king, take this time now and go before the Lord and just pray a prayer of repentance. Take this time and say, Lord, I'm ready. I am here. Right? I'm finally here to recognize you for who you are. You are the king. And then come talk to me or Pastor James right afterwards. We would love to guide you into your next steps. Number two, take some time this week and ask yourself honestly, do I see myself as a victim entitled to some earthly recompense and worldly sympathy or do I see myself as undeserving of God's mercy and love and therefore burdened to share these blessings to the world? Very important question. And then finally, number three, take some time in your oikos groups, your small groups, and pray for the persecuted church in the world. Our brothers and sisters, if you hadn't known by now, are suffering some tremendous persecution, not only in China, but in Nigeria, right? North Korea, even the parts that have not made it to the news. One of the most practical ways of you breaking out of this narcissistic, woe-is-me victim mindset is to actually see some real faithful Christians who are truly being victimized with real sufferings. Take this time this week to go on either the Voice of the Martyrs or Open Doors website, read some of the real stories that are accounted for, and pray together in your Oikos group and realign yourself to the gospel truth so that when you begin 2019, you'll begin with a mission of not recycling the curse that you have been given in 2018, but that you will now start a new cycle of blessing and joy, peace on earth, and goodwill to men. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to see the glorious truth of today's message and that we would respond appropriately with humility and with love and with power. God, we are so far away from the way in which we are called to live. But Lord, we are so thankful that we have a God who is with us and who is for us and who will continue to finish the work that you have started in us. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as we now begin a new year soon. Father, let us be committed in not recycling the curse of a victimized mindset that is only driven by a self-absorbed, self-deceived narcissism. Instead, let us be sober-minded, fully aware of our own wretchedness, our own sinfulness, of the own Egypt within our hearts. But then also, Lord, let us respond with the gospel joy that we have through your son Jesus, knowing that we've been set free and that Egypt is no more within. God, help us to live this out for the sake of this world, for the peace of this world, for the goodwill of all men, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.